joining us for this three-part training collaborative on systems-oriented care. As we get started, we'd love to get to know who is here today. So um, I'm joined by my director, Beth Bromley. She's helping with, with the slides at the beginning and then um, she will be taking over. So my name's Chelsea Sims. I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training and I joined the PMHP team in February. Um, PMHP, we are the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership, and we provide training and technical assistance to a variety of community mental health programs in LA County, including FSP and home teams. So today's topic is geared towards FSP providers. However, the concepts are applicable to anyone serving clients in LA County, and I would argue anywhere. Um, I'm joined today uh, and for the next uh, three parts of this series by several of my colleagues who um, will be presenting at various points. So that'll be nice. You'll have some variety in presenters. Um, in our previous training collaboratives, if you've attended, you may have noticed we just had two staff, um, Elizabeth Mackey and David Hainick, who are amazing and brilliant and wonderful. Um, and that's a lot of work for two people. Um, with this particular training, it turned out that we really required more of our team's participation because we needed those different perspectives, um, different expertise, experience with different systems. And in a meeting recently, we were talking about how that need for different folks to collaborate is very much what we're talking about today and for the next three days. Um, so we are hoping to model some effective collaboration in our series. So I'm just going to briefly introduce the series overall, and then I'll head it off, hand it off to Dr. Beth Bromley, the director of PMHP, to um, facilitate the rest of today. But um, what I wanted to do is, is briefly present to you this graphic. If you've been in our previous training collaboratives, um, you've probably seen this, you might be familiar with it. Uh, these are these four elements on the left are the four pillars of FSP service delivery. So we have person-centered and recovery-oriented, trauma-informed, harm reduction, and field-based and systems-oriented. I'm guessing that you can uh, you can figure out which one we're in today. We're in the green bar, field-based and systems-oriented. We have done three other training collaboratives already. And on the next slide, um, you can see links, uh, shortened links to those previous trainings. So feel free to check those out. They really build on each other. Um, in our previous, in those three previous ones we've already presented, um, we, we really aimed our focus on how to best support clients individually by supporting their autonomy in recovery-oriented care, increasing our knowledge about the compounding effects of trauma and how to mitigate them in service of our clients, and by learning how to flex our creativity muscles in supporting our clients and reducing the harm um, of the behaviors that they identify are problematic. Um, Today's training is a little bit different. Instead of zooming in on those very individual interactions, we're gonna zoom 
out um, and take into account the greater systems that affect how our clients get what they need. Um, I know that when I first heard the term systems oriented, I was not super excited about it. I'm a social worker. I thrive on the interpersonal, right? Um, but, and, and I'm a, you know, I'm a people person. I think a lot of us are who get into this field. We don't want to think about systems. Systems aren't people, right? Um, but the more that I thought about it, um, the less boring it sounded because we're already working in the systems and we know so much about them just from the work that we're doing. Um, and I'm willing to bet that most of you are thinking systems oriented already and are working within the system already. And what we're here to do is help you uh, build on that and increase your creativity in times where the systems might be frustrating um, and, and help you develop plans to uh, troubleshoot as things arise. Um, our learning objectives today, not going to spend much time on this. Um, I'll just read them aloud. We're going to, we're hoping that you will be able to define systems-oriented care and its relevance to the FSP approach, illustrate how different forces across the socio-ecological system can interact and influence one another in ways that impact FSP clients' overall well-being, Describe how, in addition to FSP clients, FSP providers are also impacted by different factors across the socio-ecological system. Summarize how policies across systems impact the provision of FSP care. Give examples of how FSP providers can intervene or work more effectively at organizational, community, and society levels to improve client outcomes. And finally, discover how clients can be more empowered to advocate for themselves when they are adversely impacted by forces across the socio-ecological system. So thank you so much for being here. I will introduce our director, Beth Bromley, uh, to take us away. Hi everyone, it's nice to see you here. I'm going to uh, take away the slides from Chelsea, but she's gonna help me a whole lot today with uh, a lot of videos. We're gonna uh, take a look at a few different types of video resources that illustrate some points that I'll share with you in the slides. And this is just a really quick rundown of how this will proceed today. I'm gonna talk first about systems-oriented thinking, uh, systems mindset, what we mean when we talk about systems I will take a 10 minute break in the middle and then we're gonna come back and talk about systems oriented thinking at the organizational level. And as you'll see, that means your team, uh, your particular FSP team at your site within your agency or organization. And we're gonna start at the organizational level by talking about team meetings, uh, teams and team meetings uh, sounds like a dry topic, but it's actually going to be a lot of fun. So that's where we'll end today. And then again, come back on Thursday. We'll pick it up on Thursday again with issues around teams, uh, including climate, culture, uh, and uh, other organizational factors related to the functioning of your FSP team.
So, uh, you know, Chelsea gave a great example of uh, why systems-oriented thinking is really important for FSP. We're doing more than just working with individuals. Uh, and I'm going to tell you a little about how I understand uh, why systems-oriented care is sort of one of those big four pillars of the, the things that we do. And, and that is fundamentally because in FSP, we work with complex problems. And complex is a particular kind of label for particular types of problems. Complex problems are those that have uh, many different perspectives on what the problem is all about. So, you know, we see this in FSP. So we might talk about homelessness. And we might understand that homelessness is a problem both of poverty uh, and also of mental illness or experience, trauma, uh, things that people go through individually. It's also an issue of our uh, inequality and the economy. There are multiple perspectives on what this whole problem of homelessness is all about. And that's quite common in FSP. That's just one example. Um, we might be working with situations that have a cause, but it might be a far off cause, multiple different kinds of factors that might interact to result in the sorts of challenges that we confront day to day in FSP. Um, we are not like oncologists who deal with a particular kind of cancer that came from one particular sort of place that has a direct cure for it. I'm sure an oncologist would disagree with that uh, metaphor, but I think we can understand the difference that we might know what the cause is, but it might be a little obscure, it might be multiple ways of thinking about it. Um, in complex problems, feedback loops are very common. And what that can mean is that one disadvantage can lead to two more. So that might mean that a client experiencing homelessness that I'm working with, that that client happens to have diabetes, I might struggle to find housing options for that client, sort of doubly disadvantaged. That's an example of a feedback loop. We'll see a lot more feedback loops as we go, but that's uh, uh, an inherent to complex problems. The problems we confront in FSP don't have obvious or quick solutions. They're always changing. Anything you move in one place of a, a challenge we encounter in FSP might have ripple effects elsewhere. Um, and there might be some unintended consequences that we need to pay attention to. Um, I think of boundary crossing and rule breaking as very common in our work. Uh, and that might mean that a lot of the things that we deal with are taboo. Uh, in other contexts, we, we might have to work with people around issues that we normally would not talk to others about very frequently, either very intimate issues, very complicated issues, um, issues that uh, tend to be stigmatizing. Uh, our clients tend to uh, break the rules. They tend to not fit into simple boxes. This is just the nature of the work that we do in FSP. And these are very broad strokes. But I think as we go, um, you'll see that each of these rules keep uh, re-emerging as we talk about systems. Um, and so now we're going to have a short video. Uh, so Chelsea, it's that very first video that I sent you on Vimeo. So it's just about a five-minute video. This is made by what's called the Omidyar Group, which is a philanthropic organization. They happen to 
uh, take a very systems-oriented approach to their work. So you'll see their logo at the beginning, this philanthropic group. But the video is meant to illustrate uh, systems thinking. Together, our work has contributed positive, meaningful value to the world. But sometimes we wonder, will it get us to the enduring change we are ultimately hoping to see? There are times when we encounter roadblocks. It can feel like the movie Groundhog Day when, despite our solutions, we see the same problems over and over again. Or when we solve one problem, another pops up somewhere else, like a game of whack-a-mole. Most confusing of all is when we find ourselves in opposite day, where our solutions somehow end up making things even worse. It's what some blood banks found when they tried to increase donations by paying donors. But they found that this actually demotivated altruistic people, which led to fewer donations overall. Or take homelessness. People have poured resources into funding shelters to address homelessness, but in many large cities, this didn't reduce the overall number of people ending up on the streets. The question is, why? It's because shelters were never meant to provide a path to sustainable living, and because job training programs can't make a dent if there are no economic opportunities. And no one program can address the underlying challenges. These factors are all interconnected and interwoven. This is a truer representation of reality, but it's confusing, frustrating, and messy. It can be hard to know what to do with this mess. So we've challenged ourselves to add to our toolkit we believe that systems thinking can help. Systems thinking is a mindset, a collection of tools, and processes for engaging with our messy world. Systems thinking helps us gain clarity by making sense of complex environments and understanding the interconnections. It helps us find leverage and reveal points in a system where modest actions have the potential for significant impact it helps us adapt so we can engage with constantly changing environments and see the ripple effects of our actions within the broader context of the system. Together, systems thinking helps us to gain clarity about a complex problem in order to find leverage so we may act strategically with confidence. When we see the effects of our actions on the system, we learn and adapt, and these lessons fuel a virtuous cycle. We've looked for examples where systems thinking was making a difference. In Calhoun County, Michigan, service providers decided to use systems thinking to tackle the issue of homelessness. What they realized when they looked at the whole system was that funders and providers were actually incentivized to choose quick fixes, even when they knew it wouldn't lead to sustained change. Shifting that pattern wasn't easy, but systems mapping helped them see where they could intervene to change how the system behaved and to increase funding for higher leverage approaches like Housing First. This helped decrease homeless numbers in Calhoun County, despite the fact that unemployment was going up. Our approach here at the Omidyar Group is constantly evolving to incorporate insights from many fields. We believe this kind of systems thinking is a powerful addition to our toolkit. We look forward to partnering with you and learning together as we pursue the enduring change we want to see in the world. Thank you. So you can tell that was a 
slightly promotional video for their philanthropic group, but I think they did a really good job of illustrating some of the key concepts of systems thinking, and in particular, this issue of the common frustrations when we're working in complex systems, Groundhog Day, Whack-A-Mole, Opposite Day, <laughs> where you have an intention and the other thing happens, you didn't think that would be going on, can be confusing, frustrating. And as they say, sometimes you kind of lose hope, like, are we really making a difference here? That's just sort of the nature of complex problems and very common experiences that come up um, uh, when working with them. And part of the lesson that they want to emphasize in this video is that one of the things we want to do is find leverage points, find those places where we can um, uh, make one change and it can have some uh, cascading effect elsewhere. And then we have to learn and adapt to the nature of the complex problems that we work with. Um, this this um, learn and adapt cycle that they illustrated was that, uh, very similar to what we talk about when we think on a theoretical academic level about the nature of the work that we wanna do within FSP. Uh, and this cycle here, of mapping the nature of the challenges, providing an intervention that meets the needs of the individuals we're working with, measuring whether it works or not, and then using that measurement strategy to improve. It's exactly the same cycle they describe in the systems-oriented thinking. Whenever you're in the midst of a complex problem, you wanna to try to think about this cycle of mapping, providing, measuring and then improving and then going back to this issue of mapping who 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 are we serving what are their needs what's the nature of the challenge they're confronting and how are we going to match our intervention to that need and then is that intervention working can we measure that and then can we use that data to improve what we do this is just a classic uh, strategy for working within complex systems so Next, I'm gonna introduce for you the sociological model. For many of you, this may be something you're familiar with that you've seen before. It really is the anchor for so much of what we think about in terms of uh, an FSP approach, uh, helps us to orient the different levels at which we need to work with clients. So this is a picture of the sociological model uh, it was developed by a psychologist named Yuri Bronfenbrenner, and uh, it was developed in the 70s and then re refined and uh, altered slightly since then. Uh, originally developed to describe the dynamic interactions among various personal and environmental factors that impact child development. Um, it's now used not just to understand the nature of child development, but to understand lots of other uh, factors, the range of factors that can affect uh, uh, health uh, 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 levels of uh, different risk factors in a community, mental health, uh, well-being. It's a model for highlighting uh, not only the different levels, but also interactions between them. So here I've labeled them as law and policy on the outside, community within that, including relationships between organizations within a community, 
Then within that is the organizational level, and we're situating you within your FSPT in that, in that organizational level, but of course there are many organizations within there. And as you'll see, your agency, your site, DMH itself, all within this organizational level. And then there's the interpersonal level, which is uh, all of the, 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 the people surrounding an individual. Uh, and then at the center is that one client that we're working with. You may have heard of these levels labeled in, in different ways. Uh, some people talk about a macro system as that law and policy uh, level, the outer level. An exo system is a term for the organizational and community level. There are meso systems that are the uh, uh, relational context around an individual. Um, and then there's a micro system, which is the individual in their particular uh, context. And you'll see I've added arrows here to show that these will uh, interrelate. So one thing is going to affect one another and intervention at any one of these levels could have implications for the others. We don't work with people in a vacuum, uh, but they're always embedded within systems that are dynamic and changing and also sometimes barriers and hurdles. So we can do excellent work at the individual level, but if some of these other higher levels aren't uh, immutable, are not able to adjust around that change for the individual, sometimes that can stymie their progress. Uh, so the interrelationship is what's illustrated here with a socioecological model. And I'm gonna uh, show you a quick infographic. What I'll go through next are a few illustrations of the socioecological model, the way that we're all embedded in uh, complex systems with multiple levels of impact on our experience. This is a really great infographic made by an organization called Living Cities, who have a, a number of uh, resources available for teaching, um, uh, uh, particularly on, on uh, equity uh, and this is a nice infographic they've made, Day in the Life. Every day in the U.S., families of color experience not only individual racism, but also structural and institutional racism. So in their frame, they actually have a three-level, very simplified psychological model. There's an individual level, there are structural and, and institutional levels beyond it. Uh, again, dynamic and interacting with one another. Uh, these biases are intergenerational, pervasive, and interact to compound one another. And that's what they'll show here. This is a family uh, that they're uh, uh, positing to illustrate uh, different types of racism experienced within this family. Structural, social, economic, political, institutional policies and practice within institutions like schools that might disadvantage certain groups. And then at the individual interactional level, they've marked that as the level of implicit bias, face-to-face -face actions that can impact the readings. And they start here with health. Health is so basic, so fundamental for all of us. Uh, and they label this as a two and a three. This is a space where both uh, institutional and a two again is institutional and a three is an individual interpersonal interactions can impact health. And they give here a couple of data points about uh, what we know about differences for the Reddings compared to others, 46% uh, versus 33% of preventable maternal deaths is one statistic that they, they cite here. 
And we can move down further in terms of uh, to look at transportation as another uh, uh, interaction, another uh, point of um, uh, contact for this family uh, at the institutional and structural level uh, where inequity can be, can be found. So transportation is another area. Black workers have the longest average commute time leading to high transportation and childcare costs. I'll say a little more about transportation in a moment. Education, nearly 50% of students of color in high poverty schools, less than 10% of white students are. There are historical factors here in terms of uh, housing segregation that we'll look at more closely in just a minute. Uh, also differences found in higher education. Uh, historically, black veterans applied for educational benefits under the GI, uh, under the GI Bill uh, with uh, less access to uh, uh, use those benefits than their uh, white counterpart veterans. We know that has uh, historically uh, compounded inequities. Uh, differences in employment. Uh, black unemployment has been higher than white unemployment in many neighborhoods. Uh, we know there is at uh, the level of callbacks and interviews, uh, well-documented uh, discrimination. And then housing, uh, 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 another factor we'll look at in more detail in just a moment. Uh, so this is a really wonderful illustration of the different factors this family might encounter um, uh, across the levels of the socioecological model. We're next going to look at a brief video on housing segregation. I apologize in advance for the explicit language just at the beginning of this video. You know what I'm saying, man? You know what's wild? Martin Luther King stood for nonviolence. Now it's Martin Luther King, a street. And I don't give a fuck where you in America. If you're on Martin Luther King Boulevard, there's some violence going down. That, of course, is Chris Rock's famous joke about streets named for Martin Luther King Jr., which tend to be in, let's say, distressed areas. And he's not wrong, because if you look at the way housing segregation works in America, you can see how things ended up this way. Once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Okay, let's look at MLK Boulevard in Baltimore. I want to show you how to see housing segregation in schools, in health, in family wealth, in policing. But first, an explanatory comma. It's the 1930s in the wake of the Great Depression, FDR's president. He wants to bring economic relief to millions of Americans through a collection of federal programs and projects called the New Deal. One part of that New Deal was the National Housing Act of 1934, which introduced ideas like the 30-year mortgage and low fixed interest rates. So now you have all these lower income people who can afford homes, but how do you make sure they don't default on their new mortgages? Enter the Homeowners Loan Corporation. The HOLC created residential security maps, and these maps, they're where the term redlining comes from. Green meant best area, best people, aka businessmen. Blue meant good people like white collar families. Yellow meant a declining area with working class families. And red meant detrimental influences, hazardous like foreign born people, low class whites, and most significantly, Negroes. Again and again on these HOLC maps, one of the most consistent criteria for red line neighborhoods is the presence of black and brown people. Let's be clear, 
studies show that people who lived in redlined areas were not necessarily more likely to default on their mortgages, but redlining made it difficult, if not impossible, to buy or refinance. So landlords abandon their properties, city services become unreliable, in most places crime increases, and property values drop. All of these conditions fester for 30 years as white people flee to the brand new suburbs popping up all over the country. Many of those suburbs institute rules called covenants that explicitly forbid selling homes to black people. And all of this was perfectly legal. Now it's 1968 and MLK is assassinated. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years Apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot Martin Luther the King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. In the aftermath, Congress passes the Fair Housing Act of 1968. It's a policy meant to encourage equal housing opportunities regardless of race or religion or national origin, and it offers protections for future homeowners and renters. But it does little to fix the damage already done. Over the next 50 years, the Fair Housing Act is rarely enforced. So you can still see housing segregation and its effects in Baltimore and often along any MLK Boulevard in any U.S. city, like its effects on wealth. So home ownership is the major way Americans create wealth, right? Well, discrimination in housing is the major reason that black families up and down the income scale have a tiny fraction of the family wealth that white families do, even white families with less education and lower incomes. For almost 30 years, 98% of FHA loans were handed out to white borrowers. Not only were black neighborhoods redlined, and not only was the Fair Housing Act selectively enforced, if at all, but it is still today much harder for a black person to get a mortgage or home loan than it is for a white person. Families are fearful of speaking up about a basic human right that should be afforded to everyone in the world, but definitely in the richest country in the world. And housing segregation in schools. The primary way that Americans pay for public schools is by paying property taxes. People who live in more valuable homes have better funded local schools, better paid teachers, better school facilities, and more resources. Here's a feedback loop. The better the schools in a neighborhood, the more those homes in that neighborhood are worth. And the higher the property values of those homes, the more money there is for schools, and so on and so on. And housing segregation in health. Because of urban planning that benefited those richer, whiter neighborhoods, people of color are more likely to live near industrial plants that spew toxic fumes. They're more likely to live far away from grocery stores with fresh food and in places where the water isn't drinkable. They're more likely to live in neighborhoods with crumbling infrastructure and in homes with toxic paint. When you're living with rats, roaches, and things like that, that's the problem. You cannot have that kind of stuff with children running around in a building, a building that may be full of lead. And not coincidentally, people of color have higher incidences of certain cancers, asthma, and heart disease. And housing segregation in policing. Housing segregation means we are having vastly different experiences with crime and vastly different experiences with policing. Because our neighborhoods are so segregated, sometimes racial profiling can be camouflaged as spatial profiling, where living in certain areas can make you more likely to be stopped by the police. And it means that people have a lot of unnecessary contact with the criminal justice system just because of where they live. The 
problem in our city. The police and the citizens are fighting. They keep targeting my brothers and sisters who don't really have nothing. And that heavy, aggressive kind of policing that you see in black neighborhoods in particular makes people feel like they can't trust the police. And when people don't trust the police, crimes go unsolved and people have to find other ways to keep themselves safe. But of course, it's not just Baltimore because housing segregation and discrimination fundamentally shape the lives of people in nearly every major American city. It really is in everything. To hear more about how race shapes American life, visit npr.org slash codeswitch. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Okay, so nicely done, that illustration. Um, you heard feedback loops. They gave many examples of those. Again, these interactions, the dynamic effects between and across different levels of the sociological model. Uh, all of this was perfectly legal, uh, leaves an historical uh, residue and impact, but also continues to today. A really great illustration of uh, the, the forces that act within the sociological model. And just to give you one uh, uh, slightly deeper dive on one particular example of transportation infrastructure and health disparities. We're all aware of health and mental health disparities. Low income and people of color are least likely to benefit from public spending on transportation. That's been well documented. And that means, of course, uh, uh, less access to education and employment opportunities, less access to goods and services. Someone mentioned in the chat food deserts. Uh, so that has to do with uh, differences in the transportation. Um, so these are some examples of the ways that transportation infrastructure differences uh, can exacerbate uh, health disparities. So I've given you here a few examples of using race and racism as a lens for seeing the forces acting in the sociological model. It's one critical lens. Uh, it's not the only one. In our work with FSPs, uh, uh, with FSP clients, we see many different lenses uh, for uh, issues of disparities and uh, exacerbated uh, disadvantage for particular groups, uh, including those who are poor, those who have an illness, a chronic illness in particular, those who are isolated and alone uh, without family or without advocates, and those who experience significant trauma. We see how their complexities are compounded uh, by the system. And the things we've been talking about today, uh, they're not synonymous with critical race theory, but they are an element of what critical race theory uh, foregrounds. It's in the news, you've all been hearing about critical research. This is really what it's all about is an approach to understanding uh, uh, relationships between power, race, racism, and society. Uh, it's a theory about how racist, racism continues to affect life in the U.S., particularly through institutions, uh, particularly uh, uh, the, with an institutional edge, uh, which includes this aspect of policy and uh, differences in enforcement, for instance. Uh, that's sort of one of the uh, key, um, uh, uh, key area of focus for what we think of as critical race 
theory. Uh, and again, uh, just to uh, emphasize, though, you see uh, these uh, forces acting in uh, uh, lots of different ways in your work. And um, we're going to watch one more short video. Uh, what you'll see in this video is it's your job to move your clients' cars to avoid uh, having them towed. And I'd like you, as you watch this vignette, to enter into the chat uh, some ideas about which level of the sociological model is at play here and how. How is it that law and policy is impacting what's happening in this vignette? How is it that community factors, relationships between organizations, that is, how are they impacting what's happening in this vignette? Uh, organizationally, what, uh, what's the impact for you uh, as you look at this uh, uh, practice in the vignette? And you can use the chat to give some observations about, about this vignette. This is a brother and sister who are older, but have so many years living on the streets. Do you need a hand with the truck? Okay, it's the way I'm gonna do I'm just gonna turn swing it around. Right. Sometime in his life, he had a house, and he had his belongings, and he had his things, and she did too. He had a wife, and she had a husband, and they have children. And I know for a fact Yolanda's a grandmother. As long as I knew them, they were just sitting in these cars. If they weren't busy recycling, they were just in these cars. They park on the streets. There's always parking restrictions. So every week, they have to move so that they don't get a ticket. No matter how many times they do it, it's just, it just shocks me that they do this as often as they do. I can start? Okay. I didn't think I would still be doing this. And I need to figure out with them now, where is the crossroads? Like, where do we change direction? Can we get him to get rid of the cars that aren't working? I don't know that he could sell any of them because I don't know that they have any value, but could we get him to get rid of them so that maybe he just had a truck or one vehicle? Because I'm very frustrated, but I can't let the frustration show to them because I'm on their team. I'm an advocate for them. All right. So if you are confronting this challenge, you're an outreach worker, you're working with this uh, uh, family uh, experiencing homelessness, and, 
and they they have these cars, multiple cars that they own, uh, many of which just don't run anymore, uh, and they need to move them so that they don't get ticketed. Um, what are the aspects of law and policy that you see illustrated in this? An obvious thing is we ticket cars that are parked in the wrong place. Um, there's no way out of that. You can't uh, put a note on your car and say, I'm experiencing homelessness. I don't have anywhere to put this car. I need to just park it here. Please don't ticket me. I can't pay the ticket anyway. There's no opting out of this uh, regime of uh, parking, <laughs> so uh, parking regulations. So, so that's one one thing that's uh, that's obvious about the law and policy level. What about the community, the organizational level? How are those factors shaping what's happening here um, uh, in, in terms of this vignette? Maybe in the chat you have some ideas. I, I begin to think about um, how our neighborhoods are uh, built. So they're just a built environment that doesn't leave enough space for parking. And so there's a, a very, a very uh, competitive and tightly regulated uh, 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 market for those spaces and for cleaning the streets. And it requires a certain level of organization and cooperation from everyone living in that neighborhood. And that's sort of a choice made at the community level. This is the best we can do is to regulate, tightly regulate parking um, so that, you know, those who are most organized and with the most resources, they're able to manage their car in the, in the way that we would like. If they're not able to manage it, they're going to have to pay a fine. Um, it's a good example of how uh, a neighborhood, uh, a, a kind of built environment can uh, worsen disadvantages for certain members of the community. Doing outreach to the neighborhoods about programs that are available to get help. So at the organizational level, you begin to think, Ooh, is this the best solution here? Must there be, you know, a bad, there must be a better way to organize some place that Ruben can put his cars where they'll be safe. Maybe there's a resource in the community that's available. And it looks in the clip like Rudy, who is their outreach worker, their advocate, um, you know, kind of figured he wouldn't be doing this so long. Surely there would be something he'd discover that would allow this, uh, 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 these, these siblings to keep these cars and to not have to continue to move them across the street. But he doesn't seem to have found the solution. Um, so that's right, we're having in the chat some observations that there now are more and more safe parking sites where people can leave their cars parked for a while um, and, and sleep in them, live in them if that's uh, what they need to do. So you can see that that resource developed at the organizational level could be useful here. Now you also are, uh, as an outreach worker, working with this brother, and so you're thinking about the individual and interpersonal level for them of these cars and, and, and how it is that they may find it better to drag them across the street periodically than to sell them. Um, and we don't get an answer to that, uh, certainly not in this clip. But there's a sense that at the individual and interpersonal level, 
there's there's something that makes it difficult for them to let go of these cars. And, um, you know, we can imagine what that might be. They may have experienced so many losses in their life uh, that these feel like uh, losses they just couldn't tolerate. Uh, these are uh, possessions that they need to hold on to. Um, be important to understand the meaning of the cars. This is a great observation. What purpose are they serving? Is there another way to fill that need? Yes, if we could help them to think through a way to get rid, maybe not all, but some of the cars, that would be, a, again, an intervention at the individual or interpersonal level to think through this complexity. Um, Cars are storing their life possessions. That's another interesting hypothesis. There's a meaning to these cars. It's really very critical. Um, and critical not just for the siblings, but also for Rudy, their advocate's relationship with them. There's something that he's illustrating to them by helping them with these cars, illustrating that he cares about the things that they care about. Um, so even just thinking about it at the individual and interpersonal level, it is a meaningful uh, intervention. Other observations, I'm particularly interested in the, the policy, community, and organizational level. Um, good to think about, <laughs> we may not be able to change it, but good to understand how is it that we ended up in this uh, a terrible state structurally that things were organized in such a way that they had no choice but to receive a ticket for their cars if they parked them in the wrong place. Uh, uh, always good to keep that in mind because it can be otherwise. And we've seen that with safe parking sites that when we begin to get innovative about uh, other strategies and other solutions, we can see there are actually fixes at a higher level that can uh, respond to the needs that the individual is expressing, right? Could you talk with them about um, the money that they might be using to upkeep those cars? And there, is there another place for them um, to invest those, those funds? They might want to stay in the neighborhood. We could go on for a long time with this vignette. It's very rich. There's something at, at, at the community level and as an organization within a community, this is an important point. You don't want to forget those that you're working with are of that community as well. And they may feel that it's more important for them to stay there in that place and that location um, uh, than to simply move a place. The solution is not to move somewhere else. Uh, that doesn't uh, uh, really solve the nature of the challenge. So glad you all see so much in this uh, vignette. I agree the frustration that he's able to share. And he also says, I can't show it to them. I need to express it somewhere else, but I need to uh, just be a helper to them, just be on their side and keep my frustration to myself. Maybe there are some policies that could support them. Short-term short handicap placard, that's a great idea. Um, wouldn't have to move it every day. And maybe there are ways that you could couple that, link that with other sorts of services that would help them. Uh, leverage. Uh, seeing patterns <laughs> helps us recognize where we can unlock change. Uh, uh, the forces needed to improve systems health are already within it. Our job is to find and unlock these forces. So here's one more video, uh, another uh, uh, systems practice mindset video uh, that will move us to this next step of leverage and finding ways to unlock strengths.
At the Omidyar Group, we believe using systems thinking to guide our practice has the potential to deepen our impact. A great deal of our success hinges on the mindsets that propel a systems practice. In the social impact world, we face challenges that behave in complex, unpredictable ways that are constantly evolving, problems that seem intractable despite best efforts. To deepen our impact on these kinds of challenges, we embrace four key mindset shifts. The first shift in thinking is to seek health, not mission accomplished. It's attractive and can even be mobilizing to set our goal as a clear-cut, once-and-for-all solution, especially when working on difficult, high-stakes challenges. But complex systems don't get solved. They are constantly evolving and don't have a finish line. We are constantly striving to improve the health of the system, and this healthier system will address the problems we care about. It's like leading a healthy lifestyle. It isn't something you check off your list when you lose a few pounds. It's something you are always working on. As you go about your life and your body changes, you continue improving and adapting to stay healthy. A key to working toward healthy systems is to see patterns, not just problems. When confronted with a specific problem, our natural inclination is to tackle it head-on. But in a complex system, stepping back from the problem at hand allows us to see something more important, the patterns behind the problem. Identifying these patterns and the ways they drive the larger system is more important than focusing on just the problem itself. Take a problem like high blood pressure. Treating the condition itself is important, but the way to sustaining better health is to look for patterns and factors such as diet, exercise, stress, and underlying disease, all of which affect and are affected by each other. Using medication can lower blood pressure, but if the treatment doesn't address the underlying patterns and their interconnections, your health is still at risk. Seeing patterns helps us recognize where we can unlock change rather than imposing change. When trying to address a complex challenge, we can sometimes get too focused on looking for the broken part and then trying to parachute in with a fix. But systems aren't broken. In fact, the forces needed to improve systems health are already within it. Our job is to find and unlock these forces so that the system can change itself, either by strengthening the forces that make it healthier or by weakening ones that make it unhealthy. Vaccines are a good example of this. They engage the system by strengthening T-cells and antibodies. Building up these positive forces allows them to continue to recognize and fight the organisms that want to weaken the system. Rather than trying to save the system from outside, vaccines are unlocking the forces within the system that can help the body stay healthy. Of course, when things are complicated, not everything goes as planned. That's why the last mindset shift is plan to adapt. Don't stay the course. In the social impact world, there's an understandable value placed on finding a solution and staying the course. Changes in approach are not always viewed favorably, but dynamic systems are always shifting, and that requires us to adapt. We are like sailors. We start by mapping a course, but know full well that once we get beyond the first buoy, we'll have to adjust the course based on winds, currents, and obstacles that may lie above or below the surface. Likewise, we strive to navigate ever-changing dynamics while still keeping an eye on the horizon. At the Omidyar Group, we know achieving enduring social change requires the ongoing effort of many people over many years. 
times working on such tough, intractable challenges can feel daunting, even disheartening, because the road ahead is long and uncertain. However, a manageable first step on this journey is for each of us to cultivate these four mindsets for ourselves. Each of us can strive to seek health, not mission accomplished. See patterns, not just problems. Unlock change, don't impose it. And plan to adapt, don't stay the course. These mindset shifts won't provide easy or quick answers, but they will help us see new ways to approach intractable problems. And ultimately, we can collectively create the enduring social change we seek by improving the health of the systems around us. Yeah, what I like so much about these videos is their optimism, um, the fact that they uh, emphasize a way that uh, this is an ongoing challenge. We will never be without a, a, a need to adapt, to uh, reorient ourselves, to um, maybe reset, kind of uh, again, remind ourselves that we can make small changes. It can have important effects down the road. We won't solve problems. That sort of work is not for everyone. In a way, I wonder if that's what uh, is most unique about FSP work, those that are comfortable with that kind of need for um, uh, a tolerance of uh, imperfect solutions uh, and are able to adapt around that. Those are the people who do really well with the, the types of challenges clients uh, in FSP experience. Um, the other thing I really like about the presentation and the video is their clear emphasis on finding uh, strengths within the system, finding ways to look for strengths and then unlock them. Sort of um, not impose change from the outside, but recognize where there are strengths that can be uh, 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 supported, can be bolstered in order to uh, have uh, kind of introduce a, a new impact on the system toward improvement. I think it's a really useful way of thinking about what we try to do with our clients in FSP. Okay, and we're gonna watch one more uh, slightly longer video. These are some colleagues, some of whom you might recognize, who do outreach work here in LA. And uh, they went and visited with a number of sites in New York City. What was so interesting about these site visits was that they were very suddenly confronted not only with uh, uh, kind of uh, differences in, in working with individual clients, but more so than that, sort of the way the whole uh, very different structure of the system of uh, outreach and homeless services in New York City shaped what happened on the ground. So uh, all clinicians are used to working with one individual, but when you get into a new context and you start to see a whole new system, you begin to notice the interlocking uh, layers of the sociological model, the way that policy and community and organizations impact one another. And this is what they comment on in, in the video that you'll see. You'll also see they, they get some creative ideas about fixes that might make a real difference in the context here in LA. And this is the kind of learning that we can do with one another. You don't need to go across the country. You can work in uh, different settings in LA and notice that there's an agency that makes different choices. And that means there'll be different impacts on the individual client. Uh, so I think I have about 13 minutes of this video and uh, then we'll be back 
together. LA is facing a huge crisis when it comes to homelessness, which at its core is a humanitarian crisis. We need uh, the right to shelter. We cannot keep clearing the streets and expecting people to go where. If we want to handle the issue of homelessness head on, I think that's in a conversation we have to open up and really think about whether the right to homelessness would be a good fit for LA, because that is going to drive a lot of the changes necessary to really tackle the issue with, with a lot of force. Team, right, that multidiscipline team that were that they were so well gelled. Mm -hmm. How did they get such a great team? Mm -hmm. um, and it really was about the leadership, okay. right? And being a very uh, democratic hiring process. There was no barriers between the NP and the peer. Mm -hmm. And when they go out, it's a, a team effort, and they they treat in a rotation. Mm -hmm. If one team didn't work, mm -hmm. then they switched out and put in another team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that there was no end to their treatment. Their goal was not to then transition that, that client out, the outreach that would happen 24-7. You know, the value of that that is unspoken, that people are not being told, I can only come out to you um, during these hours, bankers' hours, right? right. Um, that you are valued past five o'clock. Right. You're going to get my support at eight o'clock at night, mm -hmm. midnight, mm -hmm. four o'clock in the morning. That if there could be shelters every three to four miles, like was what was mentioned in New York, there wouldn't have to be these big, unmanageable shelters that mm -hmm. cause so much pushback. Mm -hmm. They'd be smaller, less unattractive. I was told the recidivism was either 10 or 20 percent, which was incredibly low to me mm -hmm. because that's not what we're experiencing here mm -hmm. My in service area too. Mm -hmm. 50 percent is what I'm seeing, right? So it, got, it has to be the services once they're in housing. They are doing a lot, a lot of what we are doing as well, which is hiring people with lived experience, which is what I saw on their team. So they have that first team that made such a great impression, um, hiring peers mm -hmm. in both the two site visits on the first day, right. hiring peers big. So Bellevue, uh, as I learned, is a public institution just like similar to USC in Los Angeles and they provide public services to the indigent population of uh, New York. And it, uh, they have a lot of programs that provide different types of services. The one that we saw today particularly was the, was the primary care clinic. That's it, it's an intensive primary care clinic that's designed to be a more integrated approach towards um, 
primary care for homeless individuals. Mm -hmm. And specifically, this one is more of an intensive primary care clinic. So it provides a little bit more services than the average primary care clinic would. And it's, it's a collection of people. So that's doctors, physicians, mostly primary care. They're working on adding psychiatry, but it's mostly primary care physicians. And they feature social workers, a housing coordinator, and everyone coming together to provide whole person care, truly oh. whole person care to the patients. That was a very unique experience. I think the, the housing navigator right in the facility that can yeah. provide face-to-face -face and you know on-the-spot resources mm -hmm. and linkages, that's, that's amazing. New York has a very nice setup that's different from LA, obviously, because they have the right to shelter and everybody is, they have a system in place to provide that service mm -hmm. to uh, whoever needs it. The nice thing about this clinic is that they have someone who's directly tapped into that system mm -hmm. and they can not only provide primary care services but then connect somebody to housing so where they can kind of fully benefit from the medical services being provided. So it, it does kind of have this warm handoff to people to this in the psychosocial setting, um, which is something LA really could benefit from, even though LA might not have the shelter system in place that New York does, at least having a housing coordinator present for whenever uh, medical services are being delivered would be really helpful to kind of ensuring those medical services are fully utilized. The fact that they seem to provide a lot of time to each individual that's going to have a lot of complex issues when they come in, that's, that's a, that is a huge strength. Um, um, probably really helps staff morale so you're, when you're talking about longevity of a program keeping all those things in mind are really important so that staff don't burn out. The, the doctors were well connected with the hospital while the social workers was well connected with the different sort of um, programs that are available from a psychosocial standpoint so there was a lot of systems were being tapped and the doctors are getting connected with more you know, if they need cardiac imaging or something they can get them connected with the hospital services surgeries things like that and at the same time if they needed to qualify for some sort of you know housing assistance programs so the social worker was able to help them with that as well i think i was more struck by the um the co-response team and the collaboration the very formal collaboration of law enforcement and mental health workers, although we do have that in LA. Uh, I think it, um, it's either in a crisis response team or in a more informal, relationship-based um, uh, uh, manner, and I, I think that it would there would be a lot more accountability if we had a formalized team that, that is their job full-time to work with these consumers that you know, meet that particular criteria, I, I do think that that could be very beneficial. New York appears to have a very linear flow of um, government agencies that are sort of uh, managing each other. Um, and that structure isn't present in LA to the best of my knowledge. It appears that LA is more fragmented with its different health agencies. And uh, if there was a more linear flow of you know, government funding and money coming in, perhaps it would be easier to divide that amongst the, the, the various areas that need them. Um, I, and, of, and of course, you know, having the, the more the, the terminology is redefined to kind of be more inclusive towards our patients, I think it would be helpful uh, for the patients to kind of access the services they need a lot more e easily. At the Queen Drops-In Center, um, I loved, it felt warm, it was warm inside, the staff were really welcoming, people were hanging out, it was really chill, um, the staff, you know, um, before we met with the director was just really good, very welcoming mm -hmm. environment. And um, 
the director. Um, I like that they're they're not only doing a drop-in center, but they have an outreach program. Mm -hmm. So they're in the streets and they're working 24/7, mm -hmm. um, which is super amazing. It sounds like the outreach teams are like two staff go out mm -hmm. together. Okay. Um, the team leads, I believe, are like licensed LCSW social mm -hmm. workers. Um, but the the people that are actually doing the work are just entry level mm -hmm. folks. Um, she did say, unfortunately, funding um, the positions are very low paid uh -huh. for the outreach workers, which you know is a struggle to um, recruit. Retain. And retain. Yeah. Um, so she did talk about that growth. a little bit. Uh -huh. Yeah, create growth mm -hmm. in that aspect. She wishes she could have more social workers mm -hmm. on the team. Mm -hmm. Someone asked about um, how they would recruit, mm -hmm. um, some, especially the folks that are working those swing and night shifts. Yeah. And um, like some of the other agencies that we visited, it was really clear that they needed that they looked to recruit people that were comfortable being outside the box a little bit mm -hmm. and um, and being able to approach people without communicating a sense of judgment or condescension it sounds like they have some struggles with you know getting resources in place that Queen's been kind of a little bit behind mm -hmm. with some of that, or maybe not my backyard kind of thing happening there as well okay. that we experience in Los Angeles. So. I mean, I can't speak for all the teams because I don't know how everybody functions, but I think in general, the team, the home teams in LA, um, I think we do uh, replicate that sense that um, someone of a bachelor's level or a l or not even a bachelor's level education has equal contribution to make as someone who's got a clinical degree mm -hmm. and sometimes more so um, we do try as much as possible to foster a sense that everyone has meaningful contribution to make and that um, it's individual too yeah. it's not by the level of education or the mm -hmm. credentials but I feel like we we have implemented that mm -hmm. now is there room for improvement mm -hmm. more than likely yeah because we as a whole department are still learning sure. how to integrate people with lived experience in mm -hmm. a way that is empowering right. one of the things that I was pleased to learn is that shelter beds or you know transitional um, housing the spots are centrally managed mm -hmm. so that at 9:30 at night if a person wants to come inside uh, there there's a way to centrally check with mm -hmm. someone and find a spot for somebody mm -hmm. and that is not the case in LA you have to call every single shelter yeah. if you don't get to them by 10 or 11 in the morning you're out of luck God help you at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Um, so that would be, of course, that's above us. It would mm -hmm. have to be at the, probably at the LASA level maybe. Or, but that would be really nice to have more of that kind of gatekeeping so that we could more efficiently find out where there's a spot. Right. They don't have to bill. Mm -hmm. They, um, you know, they're not having to worry about 
Medicaid, mm -hmm. you know, requirements and that the what they could consider an intervention was much broader mm -hmm. and would might not meet insurance standards, mm -hmm. but with this population, um, you know, uh, some things that one might not consider billable was profoundly impactful right. in the building of the relationship. And many of our homeless, chronically homeless uh, individuals have had a series of life events that have, I think, uh, they've had what I call attachment failures, or they've had, they lose their, you know, their connections and their support systems, and then they have experience after experience on the street of sometimes, you know, service providers letting them down, a lot of breaches of trust. Yeah. Um, and with this IMT team, that really building trust, having integrity, mm -hmm. you know, doing what they say they're mm -hmm. going to do, and and being willing to weather through a person's resistance and fear of trusting and interpreting it as a fear of trust right. as opposed to a problematic behavior, you know, or a bad person. Instead, it was a good person mm -hmm. who is maybe having a bad day mm -hmm. or is having a hard time mm -hmm. and looking for, you know, the ways to, to be kind and empathic. A particular example, there was a staff member who said she had waited for her client for three hours in the park, mm -hmm. and but she now shows up on time mm -hmm. for her appointments because she realized that that staff member was going to wait for her right. and was going to follow through. Amen. I know. I hope I didn't stop it at the point where you wanted to see what was said next. There's so many wonderful examples in that video of noticing how an effect at one level will impact other things. The way that organizations need to be structured to take full advantage of the context that they're in. Um, other observations in the chat, which are really great. Um, the importance of having on-site services uh, and also different kinds of services for individuals with chronic uh, experiences of homelessness. Um, or long-standing challenges that those pose their own unique issues uh, and it, and here's an example as homelessness continues as a crisis how long has homelessness been a crisis in LA longer and longer and longer we have more and more people experiencing more and more chronic homelessness the organizational uh, response to that needs to uh, shift and uh, uh, adapt to the nature of that new kind of challenge of individuals experiencing a chronic homelessness. Um, so I heard in there many different levels. They started talking about the right to shelter at the top law and policy level. The right to shelter uh, actually emerged out of a consent degree, decree initially, so a legal case and then became policy at the state and city level in New York. Uh, they talked a good deal about uh, uh, a connection between organizations at the ground level, both bureaucratically, that there's sort of, uh, you know, the impression was there's this hierarchy of, of agencies and organizations that work together, uh, but also just a sense that those organizations could be 
linked the example of a centralized uh, sh uh, shelter bed system. So you have to call around to lots of different organizations, but you could find from one central place where a shelter bed might be available. Perfect example of a community level a solution that's linking organizations together. And a whole lot of discussion about the importance of being kind and empathic, the way that warmth at the individual level um, is a value of an organization and also responds to the deficits within organizations. Someone who's had their trust broken, who has lost providers, has not been treated well in a shelter, for instance, uh, there needs to be a response to that at the individual level uh, of, of rebuilding trust, of re uh, setting the stage for a positive experience with a new shelter. That's the sort of work we encounter every day in FSP. With our second half today, um, beginning at the organizational level, um, hopefully feels very practical. Lots of specific tools, things you can implement, think about implementing, uh, having to do with teams and team meetings in particular. So again, we're going to focus on this organizational level, always in relation to all the other levels of the sociological model. But what are the things at the organizational level that make a difference in FSP? So uh, here's an example. This is the UCLA women's softball team. Um, they are a team, right? Pretty clear, obvious. Here they are waiting at home plate for a team member to come in after a solo home run. They are a team. Um, but they're also within, embedded within many other organizations. Uh, obvious, we're not gonna uh, forget that. Uh, they're sponsored by a university. They're part of a athletics program at that university. Uh, they compete in a division, NCAA Division I. Uh, so other university athletic programs at that level they compete against. They are a member of the Pac-12 conference in college sports. Um, there are policies and laws that shape how they function as a team, notably Title IX and other regulations that make it uh, required that there be a women's softball team, not just a men's baseball team. And they're all, of course, uh, a team is always made up of individuals who bring their own uh, particular history. Each individual on the team learned to play in a different part of the country uh, uh, from many, uh, all, all different kinds of people, uh, but they come together and they are a team. And that is a huge identity for any sports team, but this is just one example and you can really see in this picture the importance of a team. You and FSP are the same. <laughs> you might be um, uh, a part of a clinic site. You are part of a larger FSP program. You're part of an agency. You are part of uh, that agency's uh, uh, executive level where there may be multiple agency locations, multiple sites. Um, so you're within a complex organization, a set of complex organizations, but you are a team as well in FSP. And that is a key part of the identity of an FSP team is what you can build as a team at your particular site. So uh, this is a table that is in the new FSP uh, uh, adults 
contract amendment, and it is a, a recommended, not a required, but a recommended staffing pattern for an adult FSP team that serves around 100 clients. So uh, here in the right-hand column is the number of full-time equivalents of the particular team member type uh, to serve 100 clients. And you can see the array of different uh, types of individuals who would be a, a part of a team like this, a team leader, uh, uh, clinicians, uh, LCSW, a psychologist, uh, four full-time equivalents of a, uh, of a clinician, uh, case managers are also called community health workers or medical case workers uh, uh, who may fit into uh, one of these different types of specializations, maybe an individual who has a lot of expertise in housing, individual with a lot of expertise in employment, substance use services, um, peer specialists, those with lived experiences uh, as members of the team, a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner on a team, one full-time equivalent to serve 100 clients. Uh, nurses, of course, uh, could be a, a psych tech or a BSN or an RN. Um, uh, uh, administrative support on the team. So these are all the different individual players on a team serving 100 clients. Here's a similar table, recommended staffing for a team that's serving uh, 50 clients, around 50 clients. Uh, uh, most of these FTE requirements are about cut in half, but you can see here some of the recommendations for the number of different types of individuals who would comprise an FSP team. Now, uh, it's understood that most teams are not exactly fitting to this model. This is, again, a recommendation. It's a, a suggestion for how a team could be constituted in FSP, but a critical part of what makes FSP is having the right array of experts on the team. And uh, we should think first about how those individuals coming with disparate training, how they organize themselves together, how they think about their work together. So that's what I'm going to tell you about first is this concept of a transdisciplinary team uh, and, and what exactly that means in terms of how we relate to one another uh, and also how we work together. So a transdisciplinary team can be thought of in contrast to other kinds of teams. You may have heard this label of a multidisciplinary team. We often talk about FSP as a multidisciplinary team approach, uh, but as a team concept, multidisciplinary uh, really means that uh, each individual has their expertise that's, that's different and they come together. So here in this slide, they use a musical metaphor and they say a multidisciplinary team is like a collection of solo musicians. Each of them is good at what he or she does. Uh, you play the bagpipes, uh, you have expert training as a medical caseworker, same idea. You've got your expertise on your instrument um, and you, you are respected by others, understood by others as having an expertise in that particular instrument. But mostly that soloist is going to be focused on uh, playing their particular instrument as expertly as possible. We can think of that as a multidisciplinary approach to things. Now, if we begin to work in a way that is interdisciplinary, 
we begin to have those solo musicians come together, play together. So a group of musicians who come together as a band uh, for the larger purpose of playing together a piece of music. Uh, the, each team member knows their part in the larger song, but they're going to play together with the purpose of creating a unified uh, performance. We would think of that as interdisciplinary. What we do in FSP as a team can be called transdisciplinary. I'm going to show you a little bit of what this is meant to imply about the work together as a team. So a transdisciplinary team is like an improvis improvisational jazz ensemble. Each player knows his or her own instrument as an expert, knows the potential of the other players on the team. They begin and they make music by listening to one another and responding to one another's expertise. They make decisions in response to one another. And uh, there's something particular about jazz that uh, uh, brings together this approach of uh, knowing one another and responding and listening to how uh, one another plays with expertise, your own particular instrument. Um, before I go to our next video, uh, any thoughts or observations or questions about that team structure idea so far? Any, any comments in the chat, uh, questions, clarifications, anything you'd like to point out about teams? Believing in the potential of your teammates. So Chelsea, I think you'll pull up our next video. It's gonna use this metaphor, take it one step further. And we'll talk a little more about uh, the jazz metaphor for transdisciplinary teams. <laughs> Improvisation is the uh, act of making something up in the spur of the moment. <laughs> All right. When a musician improvises, he or she invents music at the moment of performance, building on existing theme and structure of the music. Jazz generally consists of a combination of composed, arranged, and improvised elements, though the proportions of one to the other may vary. Improvisation is all about expressing yourself, telling someone how you feel in that moment. heard Camille improvised by herself. In collective improvisation, it's when we have two or more people improvising at the same time. Let's hear what that sounds like. One, two, ah, ah, ah. Improvisation, both collective and solo, builds a relationship between the members of the ensemble, helping them to talk or communicate with one another. In other words, improvisation is what makes jazz the music of freedom. So what he says in this video is 
building on existing theme and structure. Jazz consists of a combination of composed, arranged, and improvised elements. That's a very rich statement uh, that I do think has relevance to FSP. You work within a structure, you all bring a discipline forward, um, but there's something unique that happens together. Uh, improvised elements emerge out of the arrangement of these disparate parts together, in particular, uh, organizational structures. So this blue box on the side that you see defining transdisciplinary work, members of a transdisciplinary team cross professional discipline boundaries to achieve service integration by consulting with one another. Uh, members of the team are consulting with one another. They do not abandon their discipline, but blend specific skills with other team members to focus on and achieve integrated outcomes. Very similar concept. So this is a screenshot from that video you just watched. You can see they all play their own instrument expertly, very good individually as soloists. They're playing together a, a composed and arranged piece. They know what the structure is of that piece. And then they're gonna improvise from it, depending upon how they're feeling in the moment and what they want to express in the moment. You can see they're looking at one another, uh, uh, not only at one another to sense where the other members of the team are, but watching how the other is playing too. So watching their hands, uh, watching the drumsticks, uh, watching the piano keys. So the analogy here, if I'm a psychiatrist on the team and the team psychiatrist is a member of the team, I'm noticing other the strengths on the team, what this other team member does well, really knows well, much better than I do. Where is that person's expertise going to come to the fore? That's the idea of a transdisciplinary team. And it's particularly important for individualizing services. Each client has different needs. Some clients are, are going to respond so much better to that other individual on the team with different training than mine for various reasons, and I'm gonna move out of the way so that individual services can be individualized uh, and guided, directed by that team member, for instance, who's gonna uh, match best with the client's needs in that moment. Together as a team, we're gonna determine how best to meet the needs of the client. This isn't a decision I make on my own. It's a, a decision as a team we think through together. How can we all working together best meet the needs of the, of the clients? Um, the, the intensity, frequency of services are going to be decided collaboratively. We're going to uh, teach one another aspects of our own discipline. Uh, we're all going to learn what the other does so that when I'm in this moment and I know that the pianist is about to improvise, I'm watching his keys. I know enough about what it looks like when he's beginning to getting ready to improvise, I know what's coming. So I, I don't know how to play the piano, but I can watch that pianist and understand when they're ready to step in with a particular role. Um, so again, just extending this metaphor forward to think a little about what transdisciplinary teams do that's quite unique. So again, here's a, from a manual uh, on, a, on the function of a transdisciplinary team which is really what FSP teams ought to be aiming to do. It's a manual for how to do that transdisciplinary work. There's a philosophy of team interaction. Team members commit to teach, 
learn and work across disciplinary boundaries to plan and provide integrated services. Uh, the lines of communication are open at all times. The team meets regularly to share information and to teach and learn across disciplines. Uh, consultation and teaming are fundamental to the operation of this team. So we talk sometimes about becoming an expert generalist. You bring your training forward, you re, uh, retain that training and that area of expertise, but you're also gonna learn what others do. There are fluid boundaries between the tasks and responsibilities of each team member because we're all learning a little about what the other does and, and maybe how to do a little bit of it. And maybe we can step in and do a little of what that other expert on the team does. That's a very important part of beginning to work as a transdisciplinary team. So here's another um, uh, a, a really nice visual from uh, this guide uh, uh, implemented in an infant toddler, family infant toddler program in New Mexico, a transdisciplinary team approach very similar to an FSP team approach, multidisciplinary team working together. And here's how they describe the critical components for success of this transdisciplinary team. Uh, respect the parents as the final authority and the goals for their child. Our analogy in adults is, of course, to respect the client as the expert on their own goals and their, their own well being. Listen to the parents and other professionals on the team. So listen to the client as well as listening to others on our team. Show a strong commitment to educating each other. So on the team, if I'm a psychiatrist and I uh, have some knowledge about medications, I'm not just behind the scenes in my own office with my door closed, futzing around with medications. I'm talking to the team about why I might make a certain decision in one direction or another. I might even get their advice around medications, which is an area of my expertise, but they'll have some good input about that as well. So I'm committed to the other team members and we're all educating one another about what we know about the client. Keep communication open, absolutely. No other way to do it. Commit to collaborative interprofessional teamwork, uh, we're all committed to the work of the team. Maintain planned, frequent communication among all team members. We're gonna walk through team meetings, but of course, implicit is that throughout the day, all day, the team is communicating one to the other about what's happening for the clients that they're taking care of. Work closely with all team members to plan assessments and subsequent interventions. Uh, this is a, a part of uh, well, working together as a team. Uh, and it happens largely in team meetings. We're gonna talk here first about team meetings. Um, these are slides from uh, what's called the Ohio Coordinating Center for ACT. It's a technical assistance group, a lot like PMHP uh, that supports the ACT program across the state of Ohio. And this is some of their guidance on um, uh, teamwork. Now they do ACT, they, they uh, intentionally uh, apply the ACT model, fidelity model to what they do in their program in Ohio. But the teamwork components of FSP are really just the same, the same vision, the same goal as we would have if we were on an ACT team uh, applied to FSP. So they call ACT a multidisciplinary team working together. Now, to me, that is a transdisciplinary approach, and they're going to strive to meet all the psychosocial needs of clients not engaged in traditional case management. In other words, um, the team has a workload. The individual team members do not have a caseload. 
um, uh, traditional case management model, if I'm a case manager, I might have a caseload, might be 25 individuals, and I case manage those 25 individuals on my caseload. The idea in a transdisciplinary team is there's a whole team and there are uh, there's a workload to take care of all of those clients that's going to be distributed across the team. And that maximizes opportunities for recovery. ACT is differentiated from these other models where an individual might have a caseload. So ACT is not a sub-team of a larger team with mixed caseloads of ACT and non-ACT clients. In other words, if I'm a psychiatrist on an FSP team that supplies for FSP the same way that it is for ACT, that is what I do full-time. I don't have some FSP clients, some non-FSP clients, a mixed caseload. I am a part of the FSP team and I see only clients who are part of that FSP team. Um, we, we in FSP functioning as a transdisciplinary team, we don't have individual caseloads. We also don't have responsibilities outside of the ACT team. Again, I don't have a mixed caseload of clients who are some on FSP, some not on FSP. Uh, my one responsibility is to that team. Um, as a psychiatrist, I don't have a traditional role, a member of the team. In the same way, all the principles we're discussing about the team apply to me as well as a psychiatrist on the team. Um, what we don't do in FSP is broker someone to services, meaning we don't to refer them, link them to services. We directly deliver services to the clients served by the team. Um, we're not day treatment. Day treatment has uh, all sorts of connotations that are not recovery oriented. Um, and uh, we're not a traditional mental health team. Traditional mental health team uh, might be these uh, care coordination models that you might learn in training where you're, you know, you're communicating, but um, in a pretty limited way. And there's informal information sharing. That's not what occurs on uh, an ACT team. Now, I imagine you all have lots of questions and thoughts about some of the issues brought up here um, in these initial slides. And I would love it if in the chat, if you wanna raise any questions, um, it, we can comment a bit more on some of these issues, uh, just about staffing and also the idea of a workload as opposed to a caseload. Um, please raise your questions in the chat. One thing I will note is um, this idea of not having a caseload, um, that you have a workload instead, that the team members all share and collaborate the care for the client. You will still, nonetheless, have clients who work primarily with one team member or another. That's fine. And it and it, it, it fits, it works for some clients, it's the right way to do it. This model of transdisciplinary work, it doesn't eliminate that idea that there might be one member of the team who knows a particular client best, or a team member who's sort of the lead for a client or another. Um, that's a great way to go, it works very well for a lot of teams, but the idea is that other team members also know that client, and there's going to be at least two or three or four other team members who've also been involved with that client and know that client. So it's not intended to be very, very strict that every client is served by the whole team. Of course, there are going to be individual relationships between clients and team members that are more prominent uh, even within this model. So that's one clarification. Um, any other observations? 
you want to put in the chat. Um, I am going to talk about meetings and uh, uh, strategies for staffing all the clients on a team. Um, and I know there's a lot of diversity in the county about how these team meetings take place. We're going to watch a video with a little bit of uh, presentation of some of that diversity. There isn't a single way to do this, right? But I, I think um, there are some teams, some organizations for whom this, this team meeting idea may be a change, may be different. Uh, and I would love to hear from you if you have thoughts or observations about um, how team uh, meetings work in your organization. Um, please raise those issues in the in the chat. We can all learn from them. Um, so this is an, another slide again developed as a uh, teaching tool for ACT teams. Um, and you know the first thing that they raise about team meetings is it's a place to staff clients, meaning, to systematically go through the entire case of the entire workload, all the clients served by a team. That is one of the things that happens in a team meeting, and uh, and so you can you you know you can do that um, in team meetings. You can you can also have opportunities in other team meetings to talk about challenging cases, particular cases, not all of the cases, but challenging cases. Um, uh, different teams find. Uh, different formats are most productive for their staffing of clients and team meetings last different lengths. Uh, so I just want to invite you to not be shy about the differences that you might have developed as teams around staffing. I'm going to give some guidance and suggestions, but I know there are a lot of different views about how this should uh, best be structured on a team. Um, so team meetings can be a, a, a challenge for some teams and, it, and it's both this structural level that it might not be usual practice for all teams right now to meet on a regular basis. Uh, on a regular basis. It, it, it might also be that it, teams, the meetings just have not been working well. And so team then becomes very negative about the potential for team meetings. Um, so this, I just made a list of some meeting destroyers and not having team meetings is a meeting destroyer. Meaning if you stop having those meetings, they're not gonna go well and everyone's gonna start to think team meetings are a waste of time. It's not time we can bill for. Mornings are not a time I can meet because I that's when I'm gonna be most productive seeing clients. Um, and so it, when a team falls into that rut where meetings just start to you know, not be happening for various reasons, that is a, a snowball feedback loop from our first section that sort of gets uh, you know, more, more and more negativity about team meetings. Um, another thing that can happen in team meetings is it becomes a very, uh, you know, sometimes very top down, uh, sometimes very much uh, not uh, participatory, sort of not mm, emergent from what the concerns are among the team members at the time of the meeting. Um, I never get to ask my questions in a team meeting. That doesn't feel good to anyone. So when a meeting becomes non-participatory, again, the meeting just gets worse and worse and worse and feels less and less valuable. So I think these two, not meeting and having non-participatory meetings, those are pretty easy to fix. There are straightforward strategies you can use to help make meetings feel more participatory and uh, really not feel like a waste of time. Those are easy to fix. Um, there's two other categories of problems that I mentioned here. We're gonna go into a little bit more of this in the coming days. 
uh, particularly on Thursday, undermining meetings. So these are meetings where mm, you go into the meeting and whoever's running the meeting says, yeah, no, we didn't say we were going to do that today. You're wrong about that. Or we don't really need for you to go on quite so long as you're going on right now. It's just really not that important. Also meetings where they become very shaming. Um, you say what's going on for a client, you say what you decided to do for a client, and someone says, well, that was a dumb thing to do. I don't know why you would try that. It's really never gonna work. It's an undermining meeting. And again, that's gonna destroy the culture of meetings in your setting, uh, really cause challenges going forward. And then there are these just aggressive meetings um, where some people are acting out in the meeting. Uh, maybe they're not, showing up when they should show up, when they're really needed there, it's one way to act out. And then silence, of course, just refusing to participate in meetings out of a kind of aggressive wish to destroy the meeting. Those can be tough to fix. Those can be reflective of bigger problems sometimes. Um, and they, they take a little bit of challenge, but it's good to identify them and to know that they're happening and to, to begin to focus on that as a problem. So again, we'll come back to some of these issues about team meetings, especially the complex team meetings. So um, just to say the new contract amendments, the new transformed FSP teams do have a requirement for team meetings. So the way that it's framed in the contract is at least four days per week for a total, for a total of at least 160 minutes. So that's uh, two hours and 40 minutes total. That's four 40 minute meetings in a week on a team that's serving 100 clients. That's pretty minimal for 40 minute meetings in a week, uh, pretty minimal. Um, and at least 75% of the team present for at least 75% of that team meeting. So this is the way those um, uh, requirements are described in the contract. And Chelsea, I'm going to have you pull up here. The next video, we're only going to go to five minutes and 30 seconds in the video. Hi, my name is Sam Tsimbaris. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm working with the LA County Department of Mental Health in preparing some training videos for the full service partnership teams. This video is about how teams conduct their team meeting. Two teams are featured. One is a directly operated team, directly operated by the Department of Mental Health, and the other is a team that is operated by a contract agency. Our adult FSP is 122 slots. Our homeless FSP is 70 slots. And then we also have a triple R program where we're still doing FCCS, and that's about 50. When you walk in the room before the meeting actually starts, you hear everybody laughing and talking to each other about, you know, how their night was. I thought you said open it. And then as soon as we start the bell, everybody kind of zones in. And it's really helped us to get our meetings focused and for people mindset-wise to be in the right place. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Cell phones are to be turned off, except we do still have our 24-7 crisis line, and it's totally acceptable for the person on call to take the phone and walk out of the room and, and attend to whatever the issue is. We then start with member positives. We know that people want to share the good work they do, and sometimes there's not so much room for that. Any member positives? I have one. I worked with Adrian yesterday. He was very interested in the CalFresh program, 
And so I provided him information and spoke with him later on the day, and he had successfully gone to SSI on his own. And he went on the internet and applied for the CalFresh on his own independently. I have one from Art. He worked with Alfonso yesterday with, they have a, he has an ICMS worker. And so they all met together and he was able to go down to SSI and apply for, get an SSI card and CalFresh and food stamps. Yay, so. wow. Great work. So that's Alfonso V, right? Yes, so correct. for those of us that have worked with him closely, he's, he's um, taken a long time to get, move out of homelessness. So excellent steps. Go Alfonso. And then we shift into, okay, what are the hots that everybody needs to be aware of? What's the game plan? Hospitalizations, I got Julio. We review members that are in the hospital. Yeah, he was hasn't been transferred when I followed up with a social worker. I will follow up again today. Mark's out, Tira is out. Making sure that we're in constant contact with the hospital, updates from the social workers, when they might be getting discharged game plans for discharge planning. If anybody's in jail, that's one of the ones we talk about. Kimberly M. was arrested on June 4th. She's being charged with a felony. She doesn't have court until the 20th. Same thing, do we have a court date coming up? Have we talked to the social worker? They're probably gonna recommend that she either goes to substance treatment or stays in jail. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's meet after this. And... If members are missing, we wanna keep saying that name so that people are thinking about, okay, did I see the person? Identifying if that person is on their list, that they're going out and looking for them, running screens to see if we can locate them, making sure that, okay, here are the member appointments we have, making sure that staff have them covered. So that way for the day, everybody knows if this situation comes up, this is how we're handling it. Any announcements, general announcements? General announcements, anything guys? I'm not gonna be here tomorrow. Okay. My name is Oscar Leclerc, and I'm the clinical supervisor for San Fernando Mental Health FSP program. Yeah, on Thursday? Okay. If a client was homeless, incarcerated, hospitalized, no benefits, no support system, this is a program where you can see someone at their worst and get them to their best. They moved her court date for tomorrow, and uh, so whatever decision they come up with, and once we have the conditional release like sent to us, we have to go and pick her up from jail. Can she go back to where she was? Yeah, 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 she can go back there. We actually follow them in their in the recovery all the way to like maybe possibly getting benefits, getting housed, going back to school. Oh, we already have an appointment for her fingerprints. Oh, for citizenship. As you know, the full-service partnership teams are Stop interdisciplinary teams. They are... We're about five minutes in. Oh, one more minute, maybe. Oh, okay, sorry, keep are going. ...are based in the community, they are highly mobile, and they work with the county's most vulnerable individuals. They are a tremendous asset to the county and to the people they serve. We have uh, psychologists, social workers, uh, medical case workers, a substance abuse counselors, psychiatrists, and a nurse. Um, we basically sit in the tables equals and discuss cases to get our people where they need to be. In essence, the team runs the team. There is a team lead, there is a clinical director, and they are there to kind of jump in clinically when people are getting stuck but really the team runs their meeting. And while there are 
seeming differences in organizational style and team atmosphere, the core values and principles with which these teams operate in order to be highly effective are essentially the same. There are three kinds of all hands team meetings taking place on, on, on good FSP teams. Um, the daily teamwork meeting, a weekly case conferencing meeting, and a monthly administrative meeting. Uh, and then of course there are also some hands meetings. Not everyone is there, but they might be smaller meetings with some members of the team. Clinical supervision meetings, operations meetings, special project meetings, maybe you have a QI project at your site, something like that. And then special case consultation meetings that may or may not you know, include all of the team. So it's just a suggestion, an idea of a way to organize things, that daily teamwork meeting, and I will confess sometimes four times a week works just as well as five times a week. And for some teams, they'll say, Monday's really tricky because I don't quite know what's happening yet on Monday. I haven't had a chance to see people. Um, no one's here on Monday, so on and so forth. It ends up being a little bit more like four real meetings, maybe one kind of very brief check-in meeting on the fifth day, um, but pretty much every day a chance to meet as a team. And then something once a week to do case conferencing. I'll go into that in a little more detail. And then something that's monthly that everyone be present. You can talk more about business issues that might come up around the team. So that's a suggestion. And uh, I'm going to propose and work a little bit with this model of a POP meeting. You may have heard of a POP meeting. Um, it's actually a type of meeting, but here it's also just a way to organize, a way to think about a meeting. Um, so not only the meeting itself, but agenda items within the meeting can be viewed from this angle of pop, which means you start not with what are we going to do here or what has to happen, but you start with why. Why are we in this meeting? <laughs> the fundamental first question, what is the reason that we're here in this meeting? That is the purpose, the first P in pop. The purpose is the why of the meeting. I'll say a little more about the why of a daily team meeting. Um, and the outcome speaks to what happens as a result of this action, as a result of this meeting. What is the outcome? What does success look like? We have a great meeting. We get all of our purpose achieved in this meeting. What does that outcome look like? And then, oh, okay, so how are we going to get to it? What's the process, the specific steps in getting there? What will you do? And you can use POP to think about any agenda item. We take any client on the team and we say, why are we gonna talk about this client today? What's the point? What's the purpose of talking about this particular client today? Or maybe it's just like, we need to staff this client. We want everyone on the team to know what's going on for this client. The purpose is just to keep everyone engaged around this client. Maybe the purpose of talking about the client is really to solve a particular challenge that the one of the clinicians on the team is confronting with this client. So first getting square, getting everyone aware of the purpose. Um, and then next thinking about what, what's gonna be the success if we do talk about this client in a way that's really effective, what will that look like at the end? And then fi finally at the end, sort of what has to happen for this client, the, the, the actionable steps at the end, I would encourage you to put those last 
first of all, think about purpose. So I'm going to use this a little bit and say a bit more about it. So if we think about a daily team meeting as a whole, not an individual item on that team meeting, but just the purpose of having a daily team meeting, call it a teamwork meeting, really almost to emphasize this idea of a workload rather than a caseload and that things can be shared. The purpose, why are we motivated to have a, a, a daily team meeting? Um, first of all, it's gonna improve our client care. We're gonna staff all the clients. Everyone's gonna know what's going on for the different clients on the, on the, uh, the team's roster. They're gonna have a good sense of where there are problems and goals, kind of what the hotspots are, different terms for thinking about awareness about different issues that the, the clients may bring to the team, not just that day, but in the near future. Um, and then the other thing the team meeting does is it helps to make more efficient the teamwork. So going back to this issue of, you know, we don't wanna waste anyone's time. Well, one of the ways the daily team meeting does that is that the team can identify tasks to share, tasks they can hand off and delegate to someone else. Someone happens to be going to the, you know, the same place you need to go for your client and that individual on your team can do that task for you. So identifying areas for sharing work um, and delegating to one another is a critical thing that can happen in a team meeting and it saves time for everyone. Um, the other thing that happens in the team meeting is this expert generalist work where we're teaching one another. People get a sense of why it is that as a psychiatrist, I might have done one or the other thing with a medication or why I need the labs or what it is that um, I look at when I look at labs. I'm just speaking from my own perspective of the sort of thing that I might be teaching informally, of course, sharing with the team in the team meeting. Um, so we wanna be teaching one another about our expertise and what we know. And then of course we wanna support one another. And sometimes we've all seen this, someone brings an issue to the team meeting and they bring it as a sort of dry administrative or, you know, oh, should it be this or that? But it becomes pretty clear it's really troubling the person and they really want more time for it or they wanna be able to delve into why it's a troubling issue for them. So supporting one another in that team meeting, something that really should motivate us uh, to meet on a regular basis. So here's what happens, the outcome of team meetings when they're done really well, the team is managing a workload. Again, they're sharing the task for the whole caseload of clients. They're not just managing a caseload and that helps things be more efficient. All the clients are covered, meaning we know what's going on for clients. Things aren't falling through the cracks. We haven't forgotten about this client over here who's actually doing really well, but so well, not having a crisis. No one ever brings this client up. Well, that's a problem. If we're running through the list, we know all the clients have been covered. We know what's going on for each of them. Um, we know where one another is going to be in the, the uh, days, the hours and days to come. Um, just a sense of where everyone's going to be. If there's anything critical or um, uh, uh, some that impact on someone's schedule that I should know about, I'm going to know about whereabouts. And we're supporting one another. We all feel supported. We don't feel alone and isolated in the work. Purpose, outcome, oh, it's gone. I don't know where my... <laughs> I'm supposed to have a process slide. Maybe it's coming up later. This is process. This is how do you do it. Um, process of the team meeting, you know, when you do it, uh, first thing in the morning on a particular day. And then there are different roles. So here I've made a list of the different roles a team member can play within that team meeting. All of these roles are actually 
really important. And sometimes one person does a lot of these. Sometimes two people do a lot of these. And it can be sort of under the surface, a little bit implicit that there's so many different roles happening in the daily team meeting. So there's one person who is an agenda setter. So they know what needs to happen in that meeting and they communicate what needs to be done in that meeting. They make sure that all the key events take place in that meeting. There's someone who's keeping the pace. They say, we're not gonna be here for two hours. <laughs> we gotta go in 45 minutes. I wanna keep us moving along this agenda. A pacemaker, very important person. Um, a note taker is someone who's documenting what happens in the meeting, the important takeaways from the meeting, but also might be um, pulling out key information, maybe from the chart, bringing forward some information that the team needs to know to have their team meeting go smoothly. Um, so that that could mean this person keeps a, keeps a meeting log. A lot of teams really do have a log. I haven't been on a team that really used a log all that extensively. Some people log in the chart another way, but to keep track of the key takeaways is really important. Um, we would have a whiteboard and would have things like schedules for injections, could have schedules for vacations for team members, things like that. But documenting the takeaways from the team is a very important role. Um, a facilitator, this can be a person who is not leading the meeting, but their main role is to watch and see that everyone is participating. Someone suddenly starts to be very quiet in the team meetings. I wonder what's going on for that person. Your facilitator might notice might not know what to say about it, but might notice so-and-so used to be very involved and engaged and now has been quite quiet in the meeting. So this key facilitator role. And then there's a decision maker in the team um, who might decide that an issue is settled and done and identifies these issues that can go into a weekly meeting. So it's called here a weekly case conferencing meeting, um, but a weekly meeting where there can be more time to delve in depth on, on challenges that really there's just not enough time for in a daily team meeting. Um, so again, this is sort of a borrowed slide. This is a list of all the tools that a meeting can use. Um, a, a, a Cardex has all the clients, client information, like key dates, things like that, client roster, medication list. A lot of this would be in your medical record. What's our treatment plan, our recovery goals? Um, what's the client's weekly schedule? Some clients have developed for themselves what they are gonna do in a day. It's a great thing for the team to know about. Um, list of client activities. Um, you may use some tools and structured instruments um, around clients that can be useful to bring up in the meeting. So just some example of some of the tools that can help the meeting feel productive and uh, rich in information. Okay, so ground rules for meetings are really important. And again, we're gonna go into a little more of some of these things. Um, these are some of the things that happen when team meetings are going uh, really well. And I, I have to say, this is just sort of um, uh, not an exhaustive list, but some key principles that I think can, can uh, facilitate very good team meetings. Um, respect is really critical. So if you don't have a culture where people are learning from one another, where they're not bringing forward what they know, what they uh, have for suggestions, um, it's very hard to foster respect on a team. But when people are truly listening to one another, they really respect what uh, another team member is going to bring to a situation. Um, that makes the team uh, uh, meeting much more valuable for everyone involved. 
Um, so ideally in a team, there's space for everyone to be deeply respected and heard within these team meetings. Um, and again, we'll say a little bit more about that as we go. So I posed here, you can use an agenda or you, you can use a ritual. Um, so a lot of people like team agendas, you know, like to sort of write down what they're going to do. And, and, they're, and often in a team meeting, you kind of know what you're going to do. It's sort of the same every day. So it's not like you need a new agenda for each day. You just need to know, well, we're always going to go through. You saw a little of this in the video. We're always going to go through, first of all, if we're having crises, we're always then going to go through personal positives at the end. You know, they have sort of a ritual for their meeting. It unfolds in the same way every day. That can be extremely useful for a daily team meeting. Um, purpose, outcome, and process is a great way to approach the issues on the team uh, roster. Like you don't need to talk about a client if it's there's really not a strong purpose. You just need to say the client's doing okay, everything's fine here. But where there is a, a key purpose to discussing a client in a meeting, you can use pop to bring that forward within the team meeting itself. Um, everyone needs to participate, be present, speak up when they know something. Um, I think video first is really great if you're able to encourage everyone to have their video on, can help a good deal. Now there are always our circumstances, good reasons why people may not have their video on, but in general, if there's a norm to do that, it can facilitate the team meetings quite a bit. And my own recommendation would be those team uh, roles, the team meeting roles that we went through, have them rotate, have a person identify themselves as the pacemaker for a meeting, and then they switch and they hand that task to someone else. So everyone learns to lead maybe different elements of the team meeting, um, different aspects of the approach. And this idea of constructive controversy, uh, we'll go into this uh, in a bit more detail, but there will be conflicts, there will be disagreements on the team, and that is perfectly fine. Um, and now we're gonna watch another segment of our video. We work from a recovery philosophy, figuring out in the beginning what a member's coming in with, what their goals are, what their dreams are, and then taking that and looking at what are the steps we need to take in order to help them achieve that goal. I met with Raul yesterday. Uh, seems like his, 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 his ego and his self-esteem is most scarred by the experience, um, the trauma that he experienced in Mexico has um, damaged him to where he really just needs a special kind of support. Um, however, he's focused on this work thing. He, he really believes that work is his way to really kind of like giving him a stable foundation to build something on, and I agree with him. Um, so he, he, he talked about he wants a 40k. said he doesn't know what a 40k is, but he wants a 40k, a 401k. So I said, that's good, bro. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. It really depends on what the member brings. Who were you, who are you, and who do you want to be? Those are really, really important things that every human being needs to establish for themselves. Are we still going to ask him to follow up with calling and making an appointment with the glasses? Well, that's what I'm going to support him on. Okay. He's going to do all the calling. Okay. I'm just going to sit there with him, help him navigate it, build a different kind of report with him so that we can kind of get some head work going. Have a little breakthrough there, a little. Absolutely. Val has a lot of resources for clinics for people who are undocumented. Okay. If you want to get some numbers from her. Definitely. Appreciate you. They are focused on 
client outcomes. They are focused on taking care of each other. The interactions that they have are respectful, hopeful, caring, and that atmosphere, that interaction that takes place in the team is carried out to, to the people that they serve. Any intervention, whether it's teaching a team, working with members out in the field, it all starts with culture. And so the culture you develop at your program is what you're taking out to your members. We typically talk about all of our members within a one week period. So every member gets talked about every week. Virginia been talking about she may have gotten a job. Um, when I met with her, she pretty much put herself in the door as I got the job. I really feel she's gonna get it at a 99 cent store across the street, but she had an orientation and she was going 90 miles an hour. I mean, she got all these plans, just like the job. Orientation, she probably get it. She's presenting well and stuff like that, but she had already put herself in, I'm gonna go to school and save this money. And she moves so fast. Something's going on Sounds there. like she's heading into mania. It, yeah, cause it was a whole bunch of hopes and dreams. It, well, I, I think rather than mania, hopefully it's like reconstituting back to where she was prior to this last relapse. So going to school and kind of being more independent in her goals of working and uh, school, I think maybe hopefully it's reawakening those. Now she's stable enough to kind of grasp those dreams again. Or it could be Certainly. like when she was at Millie's and then soon as she got some money, she tried to find a house and gave the man the money without talking to us, I mean, just really going fast um, okay. without kind of slowing so down. So it sounds like our intervention will be to help her slow down, work on one task at a time, and yeah. Very good. It's really this constant treatment planning and making sure that we're all on the same page. Innovation is fundamental to the day-to-day -day life of the team. There are often circumstances that people encounter that they have to discover uh, the remedy for because it's not happened before. Telecare has uh, its own uh, philosophy and system that they've put together, RCCS, which stands for Recovery-Centered Clinical System. So we're talking about things like people's uniqueness, people's uniqueness, the respect we give to people, being aware of power differentials, those kinds of things that you want to be aware of when you're working with somebody who has been put down and stigmatized their whole lives. We want to be the people to bring them out of that and to show them that they are human beings that deserve the respect and dignity that everybody else does. And so that's when we talk about the the space to fail or the dignity to fail, that's that's how we're using it. Yeah, because it was to a point where with Melanie at the beginning, she would go with him, purchase everything. So it was as if he was just there. And then she would take him into the apartment and he would then start to resist. So yes. he, what she, he's really resisting is this having absolutely no voice. Yes. And you see that in his inability to speak. We asked her to back off. We asked her to leave the groceries. He went and put them away. And I was able to ask him like how he felt and he said he felt like an adult. Like he felt independent 
And I remember after that, he like, he had really bad ADLs. And that day he like went out, he bought razors, he like shaved, he was like clean, and he was able to like see that he's able, he's capable of doing it on his own. It's a good feeling to have um, knowing that you help someone. I mean, you're never gonna hear the stories, people that just got better that, you know, we don't hear about, but these are the folks that, that actually get better and move on with their lives. And I think that's why we really enjoy this job. Well, we all might decide, I wouldn't want to work on that team, but I'd love to work on that team. And that's terrific. So building a culture on a team that works for the team members is, is a, a critical piece of this. There's not one right or wrong way to do it, but whatever it is you develop as a culture, that is a part of what you're going to bring out to, to your clients. Uh, okay, thanks for observations in the chat. Really, really helpful. So I mentioned having an all hands meeting once a week. So we can call this a weekly case conferencing meeting. Um, so this is in addition to whatever's happening day to day about the day to day workload. The purpose of these uh, uh, focused weekly case conferencing meetings um, really is first and foremost, to make those daily team meetings go more smoothly. So if there are big complexities, really issues that need a long time to discuss, to brainstorm, things like that, it's tough to do that in your daily check-in meeting. So you have a the time set aside to dive deep into issues that are complicated. And some of those complicated issues are disenrollment. Is my client ready to graduate from FSP? Um, and also just challenging cases where it's very difficult to line up the kinds of resources that you need for a particular uh, client. Those are tough issues that can be brought to this weekly team meeting. And when they're done well, the outcome is that people feel they've had enough time to really delve into the complexity of different situations and they feel up to date. And then they can go ahead and have their quicker, more efficient run through in their daily meetings. So uh, some of the process, some of the how to of a weekly case conferencing meeting. Um, uh, uh, I'll show you an example of what case conferencing can look, uh, look like. We have a handout on a strategy for doing case conferencing, you know, essentially a planned presentation of a client uh, to give everyone on the team really a review for the most part, review the key facts of a particular client for all the members of the team, and then deliberate about uh, the issues that case brings up. Another thing you can do in a weekly case conferencing meeting is this process called a mock discharge is just a strategy for thinking about readiness for graduation from the team. And we have a training called Recovery Oriented Transitions from FSP that's about this idea of a mock discharge of how you as a team think through who's ready to graduate. Um, the other thing that can happen in these uh, uh, case conferencing meetings is just to review some key dates, uh, including, you know, big benchmarks coming up for clients, um, things that are uh, going to affect the team, like time away, uh, other key dates that the team should be aware of. So that's kind of the process, the content that could take place in this uh, daily team meeting. And here's just a really simple structure example of what a case conference uh, can look like. Uh, this is really designed for maybe 
like two teams who might come together. So you might have people in this meeting who've never met this client. If you know the client already, it's really just instead quick way to review some of the client's history, sort of go through the key facts for the client. Um, and this is a handout which we can post along with the slides for the training. Again, just an example of the sorts of things. Uh, someone will summarize psychosocial history, someone will summarize a psychiatric evaluation, uh, someone will summarize the client course, really clarify what the challenge is at the moment, the sorts of things that have helped and not helped. Um, and then, you know, it's nice to have sort of a clinical teaching point, even if it's just five minutes, maybe there's something about this client, about this case that provides a nice teaching opportunity, like naltrexone, all right, well, what's, when would we use naltrexone? Or what, how hard is that to start? And would that be good for this kind of client? So even something small that the case brings up that can be a way for other team members to learn. Um, presenting lots of time here at the end, protecting a lot of time at the end so the group can discuss the case and some of the complexities of the case, and then a wrap up at the end. Just an example, the case conferencing structure. Okay, now we're gonna have, almost finished, we're gonna have um, this pop quiz, and then we're gonna watch the last section of that video, which is really gonna bridge us into Thursday's content. But before we do that, we're gonna have a pop quiz. And so I'm gonna <laughs> ask you about pop after we watch this video. Um, what's the purpose of this meeting that's taking place? What does the outcome of the meeting look like if it goes well? And what's the process? What are the specific steps taken to get there? Yes, sir. I'd like to have an argument, please. Sir, <laughs> have you been here before? No, this is my first time. I see. Do you want to have uh, the full argument, or were you thinking of taking a course? Well, uh, what would be the cost? Well, yes, it's, it's £1 for a five-minute argument, but only £8 for a course of ten. Hmm. Well, I think it's probably best if I start with the one and see how it goes from there, OK? Fine. I'll see who's free at the moment. Uh, Mr. Dubake is free, but he's a little bit conciliatory. Mm. Yes, sir. <laughs> Try Mr. Barnard, room 12. Thank you. <clears throat> is this the right one for an argument? I've told you once. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I did. didn't. I'm telling you I did. You did not. Oh, I'm sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? Oh, oh, just the five-minute one. Fine. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Now, let's get one thing quite clear. <laughs> I most definitely told you. You did not. Yes, I did. You did not. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. <laughs> you just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. No, 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 no. You did just no, then. No, no, nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. Well, an argument's not the same as contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An argument's a connected series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Argument's an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look. I... Thank you. <laughs> what? That's it. Good morning. But I was just getting interested. Sorry, the five minutes is up.
That was never five minutes just now. I'm afraid it was. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not allowed to argue anymore. What? If you want me to go on arguing, you'll have to pay for another five minutes. But that was never five minutes just now. Oh, come on. <laughs> This is ridiculous. I'm very sorry, but I told you I'm not allowed to argue unless you pay. Oh, all right. There you are. Thank you. Well? Well, what? That was never five minutes just now. I told you I'm not allowed to argue unless you pay. I just paid. No, you didn't. I did! I did! I did! Good, I don't want to argue about that. Well, I'm very sorry, but you didn't pay. Aha! Well, if I didn't pay, why are you arguing? Got you. There you have it. Is that? If you're arguing, I must have paid. Not necessarily. I could be arguing in my spare time. <laughs> I've had enough of this. There you have it. Oh, shut up. <laughs> okay, the purpose is to have an argument. <laughs> um, Definitely true. He wanted an argument. He paid for an argument. He got an argument, though he disagreed that he might have gotten an argument. Um, I, I think the other thing that I really love about this video is just the idea that some people love to argue. Some people may want to go and pay to have an argument. And I think we can all sort of identify with that. And in a way, there's also something that comes out just in watching them argue that is very exciting watching them spar and contradict one another. Um, some people like to have an argument and actually my imagination is that um, this sort of service like developing a business where someone can come and pay for a five minute argument it's sort of blowing off steam so those arguments don't need to happen elsewhere. So these this man comes and he argues and he goes back to his usual work setting and he has less of a need to have an argument. Um, yeah, some, that's a way to think about clients. I think our colleagues sometimes have that happen as well. And healthy confrontation is wonderful actually and it's funny, right? Anyway, you can't laugh about it, but there is a way <laughs> that being able to be fully honest and a confrontational sometimes it, it's a it's a nice way to engage. So I think, uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't be arguing with one another, but there's something really nice about this video, just presenting an argument as a thing that, you know, you might want to get together and really get into it with people. And I, I think um, I think this sometimes happens on really great teams too. Um, the outcome of being able to argue about something can be that we feel closer, we feel more safe, we feel more like we can be honest. So I might really disagree with a strategy that a team member might wanna take with a client. I might just really feel like, I don't think that's a great idea. I would never do it that way. I just, that doesn't strike me the right way. And our trick is to find a way as a team to disagree and argue respectfully. And when we can do that really well, that then opens up the next issue where there are gonna be multiple perspectives. This is just where we started. All the complex issues we're dealing with are gonna have multiple perspectives. We could all actually have a different view of the same issue. And being able to bring all of that forward is a really wonderful outcome. 
Um, and and so what are the specific steps taken to get there? It's actually it's pretty easy, right? You just contradicted everything the other guy said. It's a pretty easy process. Um, but they also, in terms of process, they set aside some time to do it. They said we're going to have five minutes. The bell's going to go off, and then we're done. Um, so obviously meant just to be humorous and fun, but uh, I think maybe as well illustrate a little bit of this safe kind of confrontation and honesty that we can have with one another on a team. And uh, yep, next we're gonna watch the end of this video, Chelsea. It's almost having a tough case. We always know that it's not that case of that person, it's everyone's case. So we help out whatever it needs to be done because uh, the burden on something that's very difficult or hard, it doesn't fall on one person, it falls on everyone. The social worker told me that the oldest disclosed that mom was essentially pimping her out for yeah. places to live. She was what? She was having the daughter she has sleep our with- client. Our client was having her oldest daughter sleep with men for housing, for for them to be able to have money to stay somewhere, basically. It it all combines to one team mentality, one team decision. There might still be one person that's thinking otherwise, but again, collectively, we made a decision on how to proceed. To hear the stories that we hear day in and day out, we've got to release it somewhere, or we're never going to make it through a career of this. It's, it's too hard to hear all the things that we do and not have a release. And generally, like, self-care is very important. We always emphasize self-care. Self-care is a huge part of what we do, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I got a that... massage last night. Oh, right. Ooh. Trying to do self-care. What type of massage? Deep tissue. Mm. I've been experimenting with cooking Indian food as Ooh. my self-care. When are you bringing for us to try? I brought some for myself to try for lunch today. <laughs> Does your whole apartment smell like Indian food? It smells like garlic and it smells mm. great. <laughs> All right, good for you. Anyone else? Yesterday was a rough day for me in the afternoon. Recently I've been having like a lot more panic attacks like in the evening. Um, but I'm feeling a lot better today and more positive. I was thinking of calling out and trying to find like a self-care day, but I'm feeling, I felt like a lot better this morning, so. You know, obviously let, let your team lead know so that if you have a, a day where you need to pace yourself a little bit and we don't want to just keep pushing the envelope. All right, anyone else? Every year as a team, we take a survey to kind of evaluate where each individual thinks the team is in terms of the work we're doing, the cohesiveness of the team, if they feel they're getting the support they need, if they feel they're getting the respect that they deserve. All these little pieces that contribute to how a team works together, that's what we're evaluating. So everybody takes the survey and then we spend a year working on it. So we have a team that gets together it's called our Jumpstarting Ideas Committee. And that's where a lot of our really cool things come from. Like our meditation room is a good example. That came out of that committee. The way we close morning meeting, I think, is also very important. All right, personal positives and gratitudes. Personal positives and personal gratitudes, meaning personal to the staff. 
So we share things that are going on within our personal lives, our families. <laughs> uh, let's see. We think it's really important that we get to know each other, that we care about each other as a staff, as a team. I was at a Dodger Angel game last night over at Angel Stadium. Like, I live super close, so I just like walked over with my roommates. And what? Got to just, just walked over. Chill, yeah. Wow. Was it who won? Angels won, so, you know. Oh. <laughs> well, then you shouldn't have run. Right. Anyone else? Alright guys, have a great day. Thank you. It could be the one of the hardest jobs, but it's also one of the most rewarding jobs that you could ever have. I've been here for 12 years and haven't left. Awesome. Um, anything else guys? Anything else? That's it? Alright, go team. Bye. Great. Uh, so nice examples at the end of this video on how to use a team meeting to maybe identify some opportunities for growth as a team. Um, uh, so they have this strategy uh, that they've developed uh, jumpstarting ideas committee and then they work on that over the year that came out of a conversation in their team meeting and um, uh, there's an observation in the chat during COVID we began all of our team meetings with uh, what we choose to do over the what we chose to do over the weekend for self-care so being able to emphasize that self-care idea at the beginning of COVID meetings, wonderful idea. Um, some of you may have joined us for some of our early trainings, similar idea. We would start with a meditation at the beginning and uh, taking a moment for uh, getting centered and getting present is something that can work for a lot of teams um, when times are challenging. So identifying those novel ways the team members can support one another is uh, really a wonderful outgrowth of the team meeting, which is fundamentally about kind of getting the work done and not losing track of things. But you can use that energy that you develop in the team meetings uh, to find some opportunities for growth for the team. Um, and those are the end of my slides. I'm gonna welcome your questions and thoughts. Uh, just so you're aware again, what happens on, on Thursday, the continuation of this is uh, much more of a discussion about uh, team client, uh, team climate and team collaboration, sort of how you develop a climate and a culture on a team that's effective, what are the sorts of principles the team can use to work well together, so sort of continuing this look at how the organizational Climate is what we bring out to clients. And then we're going to get into as well supervision and begin to talk a little more about the care coordination nuts and bolts too, sort of strategies for uh, working with other care systems as a team reaching out to other partners that you might be working with. Yeah, how do we bring the New York City model here to LA? It's good. And the point is not to say New York City, New York City does not do everything well. They don't have everything figured out by any means. There's something that happens when we go to a different place and we see, oh, well, I have this great idea to do something um, that we never thought of. And I think this team meeting video is a little bit of that too. You know, if you're in it, if you're the fish in water day after day after day, maybe you don't notice, but when you get to visit and see, oh, well, they decided to do it this way, it's a lot of learning that can emerge from that. So I think part of that New York City video was a little bit of just noticing a different system that is structured in a different way. And of course, New York City is 
geographically organized really very differently, uh, bureaucratically organized really very differently in LA. That doesn't mean there aren't strengths here that they don't have there. Um, to me, there's sort of the brilliance of the shadowing model. If you can visit other teams and get to know other teams, you have a, a great way to learn things that you could bring back to your own team. Okay, everyone, thank you so much. We'll stop five minutes early or something. Uh, very nice to be with you today. Uh, we will see you on Thursday for the continuation. I've really appreciated your time today. Thanks for joining.